Lord, that Jesus was raised from the dead. God, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for the power of your presence. Your ability to change our lives, change our perspective, to give hope. God, we just ask that you'd speak to us in the next few minutes that that, um, we would hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We are so glad you're here. If it's your first time, a special welcome to you. Um, You know, as I was thinking about Easter Sunday today and thinking about um, the opportunity that we have today to come together and to worship, uh, two, two kind of different things came together in a neat way. One is that... Um, in just a month or so, we're going to celebrate our 175th anniversary as a church, which is pretty cool in and of itself. But this week when I was thinking about that, I was thinking for the last 175 years, North Point, DeWitt Community Church has gathered together on Easter Sunday to celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. 175 years, that takes you through the, you know, World War II, World War I, Korea, Vietnam, all that stuff. The Civil War, the founding of DeWitt in 1932, just with a few hundred people here, people came together and said, we need a church that can worship the risen Lord. That's, that's just way cool. Neat, just need to be a part of. So now here we are in, you know, in 2015 and and, and we, we would describe why we're here as a church, that we want to help all people become fully devoted followers of Jesus, to help all people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And to do that, um, that, that we think that there are three components that are there. One is worship. It's, the, it's what we've experienced just now, the chance to, to sing and to pray, to share in the Lord's Supper, to give like you're giving right now. It's all, that's all a part of worship. We do that individually, but we do it corporately. And that's, that's, that's key to us becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. Um, we, we think of another piece of that is that we get connected with other people. That, that in, um, in small groups, in one-on-one, whatever, that, that when we come together, there's an opportunity for God to speak through each other into our lives. And so we try and help people get connected to study scripture, to um, to help each other just stay on track in their walk with Jesus. Really cool thing. And, and we think another part of that is to serve. We think as a church that we become fully devoted followers of Jesus as we serve each other, as we serve the community. So about six weeks ago, um, 200 people from North Point got together in a morning and packed 60,000 meals that went to people in Haiti that don't have any food. As we serve those people, we have a chance to serve Jesus and to live out our faith. At the end of this month, we're going to have a chance to partner with uh, DeWitt Township. The, um, they're, they're doing a special day, and, and um, we're connected the, through the township. They've, par- they've connected us to a woman who's elderly who lives in the township that can't take care of her place anymore. And so we're going to have a team of people. Jason, uh, Jason down here is going to lead that team, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, Jason's going to lead that team and, and we're going to go in and we're going to trim bushes and paint fences and fix a gate and do some stuff on windows, help do some cleaning in the house for this woman who can't take care of her place anymore. Because we feel like when we serve, 
that allows us to not just demonstrate the love of Jesus, it allows us to experience that in a real cool way as we'll, we'll take care of this woman. So uh, uh, Worship Connect serve, it's, it's all about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. You know, it's Easter. Have you ever noticed how in one moment everything can change? In an instant of time, you have a baby, all of a sudden life's different, right? Uh, sometimes a, a family member dies, and that's the marker where everything changes. I was really kind of hoping in the basketball game yesterday that there would be a great illustration here, but the one moment where everything changed is when Duke took the court, um, and so the, that, that was really kind of the end of it at that point in time. So if you would, think back with me to January when the Detroit Lions made the playoffs, right? Playoffs for the first time in a bunch of years, and they're playing the Cowboys. And the, and the Lions look so great for the first three quarters or whatever. And the Cowboys started to come back. And if you remember, with about eight and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter, Stafford goes back and throws a pass to Brandon Pettigrew, right? And a linebacker for the Cowboys, Hitchens, Andrew Hitchens, comes in and defends him. We got a picture. You can see it there. Where's the flag? That's right. And, and the referee throws the flag. The referee's a guy named Morelli. He throws the flag, gets, turns on his microphone and says, pass interference, um, Dallas Cowboys, first down for the Lions. And all the Lions fans are thinking, this is great. The, the, the Lions are back in good shape. They're going to kick a field goal. They're going to score a touchdown. They're going to win their first playoff game since 1991. And in comes the headlinesman, a, a guy named uh, Jerry Bergman, and he overrules Morelli and says, nope, that wasn't pass interference. <laughs> he says, it didn't happen. Fourth down, Lions. Lions have to punt. In an instant, everything changed. The Lions, shell-shocked, lost the game. We're here today because in an instant 2,000 years ago, on a morning just like this one, everything changed. For many in Jerusalem that day, it was a day just like any other. They had just celebrated the Passover together with family and friends. They had The day earlier, they had celebrated Sabbath, the day of rest. But they had probably stayed up way too late with their family and friends that had come in from out of town. The conversations that they had avoided on Sabbath were fresh on their minds that Sunday morning. The conversations about the three crucifixions that took place just outside of town. Those conversations had given way to numbing reality that their hopes for a Messiah had been disappointed again. This time their hopes had been so high. Just seven days earlier, all of Jerusalem had welcomed Jesus as he came into town on a donkey, cheering throngs of people. And they were sure he would be the Messiah. It was devastatingly disappointing. For the followers of Jesus, for those closest to him, it was the worst kind of despair imaginable that they woke up with that morning. The disciples had invested three years of their lives into following Jesus. Three incredible years wasted. They would live the rest of their lives with that memory of falling asleep in the garden, of running for their lives when the mob came to arrest Jesus. 
Jesus' mother Mary, for 33 years, had replayed the words of an angel in her mind. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary had to think somehow she had misunderstood. Maybe she had just imagined it because she had seen her son die a horrible death. Another woman named Mary had a sister named Martha. They had seen Jesus raise their brother Lazarus from the dead. He had been in a grave, in a tomb for four days. Just a few weeks earlier, they had seen Jesus raise him from the dead. Jesus had said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. And it was really cool for them to have Lazarus with them, but somehow the one who had said, I'm the resurrection and the life was dead, and it felt like a cruel hoax. There was a woman that Jesus rescued from certain death. The Pharisees had pulled her out of a relationship with a man who wasn't her husband in an effort to trap Jesus. She had watched as Jesus was tortured to death. Her life had been completely changed when Jesus said, go and sin no more. She had to believe it was all somehow a fraud. The guard at the foot of the cross watching the crucifixion had recognized the divinity of Jesus. He had said, surely this was the Son of God. And he would live the rest of his life with the responsibility, the awareness that he had been responsible for his death. Even the Pharisees, I think the religious leaders felt it. The aftertaste of revenge that felt so fulfilling initially as the crowd screamed, crucify him, felt hollow. Yes, Jesus had called them names. He had questioned their authority. He had even claimed to have a special relationship with God. And in the end, the Pharisees thought he probably got what he deserved. But as the sun came up that morning, you could sense the heaviness in the city. Disgust, disappointment, despair. And in one moment, everything changed. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to Matthew 28. If you've got an electronic device, a smartphone or whatever, and a Bible app, go there to Matthew 28. If you don't have a Bible... Um, let me just say, we would love to give you a free copy of the, of the full Bible. After the service, if you go out these doors, there's a little kiosk that's just beyond the doors. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one so that you can write your name in it, so that you can use it on Sunday mornings when we're looking up scriptures, so that you can underline, so that you can write down questions, make notes, that kind of thing. Just uh, head back there after the service. That'd be cool. Matthew 28 says this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they'll see me. There's a critical question. Uh, a, a question that I think if we're honest with ourselves is kind of like the elephant that's in the room this morning. Here at North Point, in churches around the country, in churches around the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a question that you have to ask and answer in order to be intellectually honest with yourself. If you're here this morning because somebody made you come to church on Easter Sunday, if, if you're here maybe because you got questions, but you don't, you're not sure that you really believe it, it's a question that you have to ask as well, or else you'll live your life based on a premise that you've never really examined. If you're a skeptic, it's a question, it is the question on which everything hinges. When you ask this question and when you ultimately come to an answer, your response has to be either that you're all in or that you fold and just dismiss it. The answer to this question is the thing that changes everything. The question's simple. Was the resurrection real? Was the resurrection real? You know, there, there are different ways to look at that question, different kind of things to think about. But let me just share three kinds of evidence that point to the validity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that his body physically came back to life. The first is physical evidence. That existed in the first century. There, there was a tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. That the stone was rolled away and it was empty. Physical evidence for his resurrection. There were the grave clothes that Jesus' body had been wrapped in. That were folded up and, and set on the stone there. There was the physical evidence or the lack of evidence. That no one could come up with Jesus' body. There was no way that they could ever come up with the body to say this is the body of the guy who was crucified. It's decaying and here are his bones. That's never been discovered. The physical evidence points to the authenticity of the resurrection. The testamentary evidence, the evidence of people who were there, who interacted with him, demonstrates the power of the resurrection as well. Jesus appeared. He, he interacted with people. He talked with them. He touched them. He ate with them. Scripture says that uh, at one point, as many as 500 people met with Jesus as he taught them about the kingdom of God. The testamentary evidence says, you know what? Jesus was alive again. He was resurrected. There's historical evidence that points that direction as well. Um, scriptures that were written, uh, um, accounts that were written within 40 years of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. People who said, this is what happened. Th those, those documents were never refuted. They were never opposed. The historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is extremely strong. Chuck Colson uh, was a special counsel to President Nixon in the late 1960s and early 1970s. He was essentially the executive officer for the president of the United States. Colson was the guy that when Nixon said, I want this to happen, he made it happen. 
Colson was one of the guys who was convicted of Watergate, of the Watergate crimes. And he went to prison. Um, uh, in prison, he, he um, actually right before he got to prison, he became a follower of Jesus. Colson wrote these words. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of those 12 was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would, have not, they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? That's absolutely impossible. The, the evidence for the resurrection is strong. The evidence for the resurrection is powerful. Why, why is the resurrection so important? Because it separates Jesus from every other religious leader in, in history. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is simply a good teacher who died a martyr's death. Christianity is simply one of many religions. It's a philosophical lifestyle, kind of a worldview for how you do life. If there's no resurrection, Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Mormonism, they're all equal, valid paths to God. If there's no resurrection, we can't trust the Bible as being true because the Bible says Jesus was resurrected. And if that's not true, we can't trust any of it. If there's no resurrection, we can decide on our own what's right or wrong. There's no urgency in, in terms of how we live. It doesn't matter if we tell others about Jesus. If there's no resurrection, our character doesn't really matter. What matters is what people think about us. The Apostle Paul, the most prolific writer of the New Testament, put it in these terms. If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. Everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling the string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we pass on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, they're sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up. The first and a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. It's true, isn't it? The resurrection matters incredibly. The sobering fact, though, is that for many of us, we live as though the resurrection isn't a reality. Now, think about this for a second. It doesn't take the resurrection to be a good moral person. It doesn't take the resurrection to be kind to your family and friends, to submit to authority that you agree with. It doesn't take the resurrection to grieve when someone dies that you love. It doesn't take the resurrection to come to church each Sunday. It doesn't take the resurrection to spend your money on whatever you want and then give God whatever you have extra. It doesn't take the resurrection to control your behavior 
when your thoughts are impure, when, when anger burns within you. It doesn't take the resurrection to live like everybody else around us. But if the resurrection is real, if it's true, it changes our lives. When you look back at Matthew 28, there were four different responses that happened as a result of the resurrection. The first was fear. Both the guards and the women were filled with fear at the resurrection. The result of their fear was radically different, though. The guards, um, they were paralyzed with their fear. They became like dead men, Scripture says. But the women, the women, their fear was coupled with joy, with hope that was there. It's a healthy thing to respond to the resurrection with fear. It's a healthy thing. Why fear? Because if God could raise Jesus from the dead, he can do anything. And that's scary. Scary good, scary bad. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can do anything. Fear was one of the responses to the resurrection. Worship was another. In verse 9, it says that the women, as they encountered Jesus, as he talked to them, that they wrapped their arms around his feet and worshipped him. My desire, my hope, is that you've been able to worship this morning and that your response to the resurrection will be a life of worship. Third response was that that both the angel and Jesus said to the women, go and tell others that Jesus is alive. And so they began to go out and spread the news. Jesus' command was to go and tell the disciples. And a few verses later, he actually even expands on that. He says, go into the entire world and tell the good news. Preaching baptizing, teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded. The good news of the resurrection is too good not to share. There's one other response to the resurrection that happens uh, in a passage we haven't read yet. Verse 11. Verse 11 says this, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets back to the governor, we'll satisfy him. We'll keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and they did as they were instructed. And that story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The only thing about that story that's, that, that's interesting that we don't read there their denial of the truth of the resurrection was that in in Roman culture, if a prisoner lost or if a guard lost his prisoner, his life was taken because that that prisoner got away. In this case, the prisoner was a dead body. The guards were there to seal the tomb to make sure that the body would not be taken by the disciples. And if that that had really happened, the guards would have been executed for dereliction of duty. The people in Jerusalem knew that. So this story that they circulated didn't really hold water. Hear this. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything because at its core, the resurrection is all about hope. Hope that there's more to life than what we experience in the here and now. Hope that God allowed Jesus to experience our punishment for every sin every bad decision, every hurtful word, every selfish deed. Hope for life after death because the resurrection proves that eternity is real. If the resurrection is real, what's that mean for you? It means that no matter what's going on in your life, 
You're not alone. No matter what's going on in your life, there's hope. Whether you messed up your life or the mess in your life is the result of somebody else's sin, God can bring to life what once was dead. He can bring joy where there was destruction. He can bring hope where there's been despair. It's a story that's been repeated way too many times in history. At the end of Operation Desert Storm in 1991, Ruth Dillow experienced what every military family member dreads. She worked at the National Garment Company in Chanute, Kansas. She got a call that day in 1991 to come to her boss's office. As she walked into the office, there were two military officers in their dress uniforms there to greet her. And she knew what that meant. She knew. The news was as bad as it gets. Just two hours before the ceasefire that ended the first Gulf War, just two hours before the ceasefire, her 20-year-old son, Private First Class Clayton Carpenter, a tank mechanic serving with the 1st Cavalry Division near the Kuwait border, had stepped on a cluster bomb and been killed. Ruth said, I just fell apart. He was dead. Those were the only words I remember them saying. Friends and relatives came and left. She got into bed hoping to sleep. She got out of bed restless. I kept looking at that picture, she said, nodding toward a framed photo above the living room door. I kept saying, no, he can't be dead. This has got to be a mistake. She later wrote these words. I can't begin to describe my grief and shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days, I just wept. I expressed anger and loss. For three days, people tried to comfort me, but nothing worked. The loss was simply too great. But in a moment, everything changed. Three days after she received the message, the phone rang. The voice on the other end said, Mom, it's me. It's Clayton. I'm alive. Ruth said, I couldn't believe it at first. But then I recognized his voice and and realized he really was alive. The message was a mistake. I laughed. I cried. I felt like turning cartwheels because my son, who I thought was dead, was actually alive. Clayton Carpenter's reported death was a mistake. He had actually stepped on a cluster bomb and been wounded in the hand and foot, but he remained very much alive. The joy of Ruth Dillow is just a glimmer of what we celebrate this morning. The real life, verifiable resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. In the empty tomb, there's joy and peace and hope that extends into eternity. Life after death changes everything. We don't see the world the same because of the resurrection. We don't see our circumstances the same because of the resurrection. We don't look at sickness and tragedy and death the same because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection changes everything. If you think back to that football game in January, that moment of that penalty, there's some pretty interesting stuff associated with that. The evidence was clear, right? You saw that 
picture, the evidence was clear. Andrew Hitchens was guilty of past interference. The penalty was pronounced on the field to the players, to the fans in the stands, to millions of people watching around the country and the world. Pass interference, first down, Lions. But the headlinesman came in and said, what you saw never happened. Fourth down, Lions. If you're a Lions fan, you say, that's not fair. That's not right. That should never have happened. And you know what? You're absolutely right. If you're a Cowboys fan, you say, there's no way we deserve what just happened. And you're right. If you understand the resurrection, that's the story of our lives. Guilty of sin. Pronouncement made and communicated. Our lives, our choices, our sin put Jesus on the cross. Our selfishness cost Jesus his life. But the resurrection changed everything. For 2,000 years, the church has said in celebration of the resurrection, He is risen. He's risen indeed, right? As you read the New Testament, though, you discover something very interesting. The church in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, didn't go around saying Jesus is alive. They communicated to the world around them, Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus conquered death, He can conquer Anything. He has the right to control every aspect of our lives. Tim Keller wrote these words. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That changes everything. Let's pray. God, what an incredible privilege it is to speak your word this morning. God, what an incredible privilege it is for we as believers to come together and to, and to proclaim together that Jesus is alive, that the grave couldn't hold him, that he's, his body didn't stay in the tomb. That he has paid the price. That he's won the victory. That there's hope and life and joy in him. God, our desire is that we would live lives that honor Jesus, that honor you. God, that we would live lives in relationship with you because of the resurrection. Because it changed everything, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing just in response and worship Jesus.